You are listening to the Through the Bible Studio Series with Pastor Nate Holdridge. Join us as we continue our study through the New Testament book of Revelation. Here's Nate. Well, we are almost there. Revelation chapter 20. We are this and two more chapters after it away from the consummation of all things and uh, seeing how the uh, you know, heaven will be ushered in uh, for the glory of God. And so in chapter 19, of course, in Revelation, we saw the second coming of Christ, the return of Jesus riding on a white horse with the armies of heaven declaring war ag- against the uh, armies on earth, fighting against him and uh, establishing himself as the king over, uh, you know, the entire realm. Uh, throwing the Antichrist and the false prophet into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur and establishing uh, that judgment. Now, as we turn to Revelation chapter 20, we come to one of the most hotly contested chapters really in all of the Bible. And And the question simply surrounds this. What does it mean that this is a period of 1,000 years? Uh, Are we talking about a literal thousand year period or is this something figurative? Is is a thousand years thrown out as a time that is meant to symbolize an era, a a period of history, uh, the season after the cross? What is this thousand years meant to be? Now, for you, I'm sure you've figured out up by this point as we've gone through the book of Revelation, I have taken this book in a literal Uh, kind of sense. And so for me, as I see the thousand year period, I I see a literal thousand year period of Jesus's rule and reign here on this planet after the second coming of Christ in Revelation chapter 19. Uh, We're going to see that Satan is bound during this period. I, I believe clearly that he is not bound right now. He walks about like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. I reject the idea that this chapter is a reference to the spiritual rule of Christ. Uh, I reject the idea that we can usher in this era, era of Christian utopia, uh, and bring in a millennial reign of Christ. And, you know, the timeline I don't think can be ignored. It says in verse 1, then I saw. I I think that these events follow a very public return of Christ. And, uh, you know, just in the same way that in other parts of the book, there are specific amounts of time that are used to indicate a specific amount of time. I believe the very same thing here, that this thousand years is a literal thousand year future reign of Jesus Christ. And so that's how I will teach it uh, to you today. It says in verse one, he says, then I saw an angel coming down from heaven. Uh, Okay. Now this uh, angel uh, is going to come and he, it says, is holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. And he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent who is the devil and Satan and bound him for a thousand years and threw him into the pit and shut it and sealed it over him so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended 
After that, he must be released for a little while. Now, a couple of things to point out here. Number one, uh, this angel, I just wanted to mention, it's not God himself who, who directly apprehends Satan and throws him into this pit. He sends an angel to do it. And I, and I say that just because I think for so many people, the belief or the view, practically speaking, is that the devil, Satan, this great serpent, this dragon, that he is, you know, God's opposite. But God sends Satan's opposite to apprehend him, and it's an angel. Satan is merely a fallen angel. He is of the created order. He's got absolutely nothing on the God of the universe. And so I just find it fascinating that where we might expect it to say that God himself came down holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain and locked Satan up for a thousand years, where we might expect that it would say God did those things, in actuality it was just another angel. And so uh, just beautiful there. And, and, and of course all of these titles for Satan here in verse 2, I think they point to different things about him. First of all, he's referred to as the dragon. Uh, this, appoint, this points to wickedness and power and strength. The serpent of old, this speaks of his cunning, his tricks. Jesus would say, be wise as serpents, be cunning as serpents, but gentle as doves in planting churches and preaching the gospel. But Satan, of course, used cunning and wisdom and trickery for evil. Uh, the devil is a title that means slanderer, gossiper, father of lies. And if you've ever heard that voice in your ear saying that God doesn't care for you, God doesn't love you. Uh, the devil himself, the slanderer, the gossiper, the originator of lies. And then Satan as a title simply means adversary or opposition. And so you get a full fully orbed picture of who Satan is by simply looking at his titles there in verse 2. Now, this is also interesting that he is taken and thrown into the bottomless pit. Uh, it's sealed and shut. He is unable to deceive the nations until the thousand years were ended. And after that, he must be released for a little while. This is interesting and it slightly confusing in the sense of, you know, why would this be? But let me just say it like this. We'll get to it in a moment. But because this comes to pass, we see a lot of different things about human hearts revealed. You see, after the thousand year rule and reign, there will be those who are not in glorified bodies who will repopulate the earth. And many of these people who, although they submitted to the rule of Christ for a thousand years and saw him quite literally and physically doing good, loving the nations, after a thousand years of experiencing his kingdom here on earth, when Satan is released, many of them will rebel against Christ. Uh, and that just flies in the face of those who say, if I could just see him, I would believe in him, follow him, and trust in him. Well, it's, it's one thing to believe in Jesus, and it's another thing entirely to submit to him, to trust to him. And many people will not, and that is exposed because Satan is released for a little while after this thousand-year reign of Christ. Now, in verse 4, we move on, and it says, Then I saw thrones, and Seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. 
Also, I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God, and those who had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. And so we have these thrones, first of all, and there are those that sit on them uh, and have authority to judge. And uh, Jesus actually told his disciples that one day they would have authority to judge the 12 tribes of Israel, Luke 22, verse 30. And I believe that part of what's happening here is that rewards and responsibilities are being divvied out in the kingdom era based on faithfulness and fruitfulness in this era. And so, you know, the Lord's people are given responsibilities of leadership and rule and reign to rule alongside of Jesus. How glorious and wonderful this particular truth is. And, and, uh, it says in verse 5, And the rest of the dead who did not come to life until the thousand years were ended, this is the first resurrection. And so we have a, a group of people who uh, will, you know, the rest of the dead, he says in verse 5, did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first uh, resurrection. Uh, of course, this is not the first resurrection ever. Jesus was raised from the grave. But I, what I take this to be is the completion of the first resurrection. He says in verse 6, he says, Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. And so, of course, Jesus was the first fruits of the first resurrection when he rose uh, from the grave. And uh, it says in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 that uh, the saints who died since Jesus rose from the grave, they will be first to rise. The church will then be caught up to him in the air, I believe, at the rapture of the church, uh, seven years or so before this event. Uh, there will be the two witnesses who will also rise from the dead and ascend. There will be the resurrection of tribulation martyrs who are in the presence of God, perhaps the Old Testament saints to follow, but all of that will be the consummation of what is entitled the first resurrection. And these people will reign with him for a thousand years. And as I said, this is the period of time known as the millennial reign of Christ. Satan bound uh, for all of that time saints given responsibilities during this wonderful millennial reign of christ you might remember the story that jesus told of the man who had five talents and two talents and one talent and they went out and the the first two they doubled their investment and the man with one did nothing with it and he talked about cities you know that being given responsibility for cities there in luke chapter 19 and so uh, saints will be given responsibilities. I believe in Isaiah 2, verse 1 and 2, that it's a reference to Israel, once again, becoming a superpower during that millennial reign of Christ. Jesus will be known and famous throughout all the world. Uh, peace will extend even to the animal kingdom. Isaiah 11, verse 6 through 9, the lion and the lamb lying down together. And David will return to the throne. There will be a Davidic 
rule and reign. There are prophecies that still must be fulfilled about the reign of David. Ezekiel 34, 23 and 24, Hosea 3, verse 5, Jeremiah 30, verse 9. David will return to the throne. And and I believe uh, Ezekiel 40 through 48, there will be even a millennial temple uh, that is rebuilt. And so uh, just beautiful. I think I mentioned a moment ago, Exodus 34. I meant Ezekiel 34 concerning David returning to the throne. So millennial temple, David returning to the throne, just a wonderful time during those thousand years. And, and you just think of it, you know, have you ever just had a good day where things went right here on earth? I mean, even in that kind of day, there's all, all types of things that are wrong and off, but Think of what it will be like to experience this planet restored by Jesus under his leadership and under his direction for a thousand years. I mean, for 10 centuries, the leadership of Christ, the industry that we'll see produced, the art that we'll see produced, the music that we'll see produced, the potential that is there. And it will just come to light under the rule and the reign of Jesus. I greatly look forward to this time. And it says in verse 7, it says, And when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea. Now, this will be what I believe is that this will be, be a repopulated earth. Uh, you know, there will be all of these people who are deceived, obviously, by Satan. And so the question is, who are these people that have repopulated the earth? And who are these people that will follow Satan? You know, those who survived the tribulation will I believe, enter the, the millennium in their natural bodies and they will bear children and they will repopulate the earth, Isaiah 65. And so, obviously, there will be these ideal conditions. The curse will be lifted. And so, those in their natural bodies will have the ability to reproduce. And because the curse will be lifted, there will be rapid population growth throughout the world. And I believe that as Jesus is ruling and reigning, there will be this outward profession for Christ uh, without actually placing faith in him for salvation. And so even with ideal conditions, man is, is going to turn from Jesus. We are fallen by nature. We are not basically good. We are basically at our core evil. And uh, Satan goes out and deceives nations at the four corners of the earth and Gog and Magog to gather them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea. Now, this is reminiscent of the battle prophesied of in Ezekiel 38. But that battle appears to have already taken place in Revelation. Gog and Magog can actually mean ruler and people. And so you've got nations, rulers and peoples coming together. And they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints in the beloved city. But fire came down from heaven and 
consumed them. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur, where the beast and the false prophet were, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Now, I think it's clear to say that there is so much about this chapter that we have to wait for the details to unfold. You know, what, what do all of these things actually really mean? But it, it does appear to me that there's this future thousand-year rule and reign of Christ. And as I said, I'm greatly anticipating this moment in human history uh, to unfold. But at the end of it, there's this rebellion, and, and I'm not exactly sure what this is going to look like, but peoples and nations come together to battle against Christ. Their number like the sand of the sea. They've seen him rule, they've seen him reign, they've experienced his goodness, yet however, they reject him. And they fight against him, and fire comes down from heaven and consumes them. The battle is over, and the devil who had deceived them, was thrown into the lake of fire where the false prophet and the beast were, and they are tormented day and night uh, forever and ever. And we're going to see this lake of fire repeated once again, but I just wanted to make a couple of comments about this place. What we're seeing here in this little section is exactly what Jesus said in Matthew 25, verse 41, that the lake of fire was prepared for the devil and his angels. It was not meant for human habitation. All right, but ultimately it became a place of human habitation because it is the place that God is not. For all of eternity, God will not be there. And so those who do not want God will be in that place because the soul of man is eternal. And it says in verse 10 that this is a place of torment day and night forever and ever. This means from age to age, uh, this will be a place of torment. Now, I understand completely that the doctrine of hell is an incredibly difficult doctrine. I, I think that this doctrine is probably the first doctrine someone would abandon as they wrestle with the Christian faith. Now, we know a lot more in detail about heaven, you know, what it will be like. But here are some of the problems with throwing out the doctrine of hell. For one, scripture and the church would have been liars for generation after generation. Jesus would be a liar generation after after generation. And so just because it is seemingly unbearable doesn't mean that it is dismissible. And the consequence of disbelieving in hell is, you know, I think there are a few different things that could be mentioned. You know, one is uh, if, the, if we disbelieve in hell, then life's choices here really make no difference. Heaven awaits everyone. I think also we sort of would have to confess, well, there, there's no free will. I mean, heaven awaits everyone, no matter what they desire. Uh, I think we'd also have to say, you know, there's no absolute morality. I mean, if, if everyone gets in, there's really no big deal of being good or evil or anything like that. And, 
And as well, Jesus would not really be a savior. What would he be saving people from if there were no place of separation from God for all of eternity? Uh, also, the consequence of disbelieving in hell would lead to a total religious indifference. I mean, who cares what you believe or why you believe it? And in one sense, I think you could say that the love of God would be erased. I mean, the love of God is not revealed uh, in philosophy, in logic, uh, really in nature all that much, in conscience or history. But the love of God is revealed on the cross. I mean, everybody talks about God being a God of love, but where did they get that idea? They got that idea from the God of the Bible who sent his son to die on a Roman cross for the sins of the world. And so if there's no hell, there is no need for the cross. And hell really is simply an absence of heaven, an absence of God. It's referred to in places as outer darkness. And here he says it's forever and ever. It's not an annihilation of the human soul, which would be contrary to the plain words of Jesus and his plain meaning. Uh, it, it, you know, it, it, it's not, hell doesn't come to an end or the pain of it. The soul seems to be intrinsically immortal. And forever and ever and ever, there will be separation from God in this place that we refer to today as hell. It is not God's desire that any would perish, but that all would have everlasting life. Uh, but the reality is there will be those who go with Satan, the false prophet, and the Antichrist into a place of separation from God forever and ever and ever. John continues to write and he says, Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. Uh, this is it's different from the other thrones that are mentioned. It's a great white throne and from his presence the earth fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. And then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. Now these books appear to be a record of the works of man. And basically what we're seeing here is that some people are judged according to what, are what is written in the books about their works and others who are judged according to the book of life. And of course, as a Christian, our desire is not to be judged by the books that have recorded our works. I heard someone say it like this at one point, talking about just the catalog of our lives. Just imagine every sin just written down, every lustful thought, every moment of greed, every lie or partial lie or deception, every bad motive, every hatred within the heart. Imagine all of that just being written down, you know, in a book. Imagine it being written down in a computer document. There you have it. You've got it all listed there. I don't know how many pages it would be, but it'd be a massive document. 
Now imagine then going to that computer and uh, selecting all. You select all that text and you cut it. You know, you delete it. And then imagine there being another document, which is the life of Christ, the sinlessness of Jesus, all the things he ever did, the way that he fulfilled the law from his childhood upward. And you take that life of Christ, pure and spotless, blameless, no sin whatsoever, and you go to that document and you select all. And then you copy his righteousness. Go back to that original document, your own life, which is now blank, and in its place, you paste the life and the righteousness of Jesus. This is what it means to be written in the book of life. You no longer are being judged according to your works. You are being judged according to the works of Jesus. And so during this great white throne judgment, uh, there is this opening of the books, some judged according to uh, their works and others judged according to the life of Christ. And the sea, verse 13, gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. And so you've got the sea and death and Hades. These are holding tanks for the dead who are outside of Christ. And they are raised, this final resurrection. Jesus spoke of it in John chapter 5. This final resurrection comes. Some are being raised to life. That's already happened. But here, there's a resurrection to eternal death. Then death, verse 14, and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name, and, and of course we already saw that the lake of fire was a place of torment day and night forever and ever. So it's an eternal place. And if anyone's name was not found, verse 15, written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. I cannot understate how important it is to place your faith, your trust, your confidence in Jesus. You know, Christian, if, if you're listening to this right now, do not allow the watering down of the gospel to corrupt your soul. Don't believe for a moment that there's another way into the eternal presence of God. Don't believe for a moment that there isn't a last day and a day of reckoning and judgment. Don't believe for a moment that this place that we call the lake of fire, or hell, don't believe for a moment that it's, a, that it's fiction, that it's a figment of our imagination. No, he says in verse 15 that anyone's name who is not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. And I remind you, we will proclaim that all of his judgments are good. But for now, we've got to preach the gospel. That when people confess with their mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in their heart that God has raised him from the dead, they will be saved. I think this chapter puts it all into perspective. For all the details of it that we might debate, there is no debate that a day of reckoning is coming. And the gospel is serious business. Preach it. Live it with all your 
heart. This is your one opportunity to do so. God bless you and amen. Thank you for listening. For additional resources and teachings or to contact us, please visit us at nateholdridge.com.